1: Welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Joan Sotomayor, a postdoc at the New York University, and I'm your host for today's episode. We'll be talking to Professor Erica Turner in her new book, Suddenly Diverse, High School Districts Manage Race and Inequality, recently published by the University of Chicago Press. Erica Turner is an associate professor in the Department of Education Policy Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The book examines two districts in the Midwest responding to rapidly changing demographics at their schools. Through an ethnographic account, Erica demonstrates that despite the intentions to promote diversity or eliminate achievement gaps, district leaders adopted policies and practices that ultimately perpetuated existing inequalities and advanced new forms of racism. By detailing the pressures shaping districts' policies, the book provides valuable reflections on how. Diverse districts can better provide educational opportunities for all students. Erica, thanks for joining us and welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, great. So, to start, I ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your academic background, and your academic interests.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin Madison, as you mentioned. Um, I teach undergraduate and graduate students there in the Department of Educational Policy Studies. Uh, More broadly, I'm a researcher. Um, My research interests are around race and educational policymaking. And a lot of my research, I look at how people in the process of making policies, but also everyday people kind of frame racial inequality and how that shapes the decisions they make um, about schools. I I usually focus on the school district level or kind of of local politics. Um, I'm also a former teacher, a middle school teacher, and also a parent, current parent of
1: Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And can you maybe tell us a little bit about where the idea for writing this book came from?
0: Sure. Well, I was told I had to have a book for tenure. So that's the short answer uh, (laughs) uh, for any of the academic listeners out there. But uh, more broadly, I think um, I've always kind of had different interests around education policy, some of it in the politics of race and inequality, some of it around just how school systems work and what are the possibilities for public schooling and including administrations and school districts. Um, And I noticed often these conversations were not uh, happening together. And um, so one of the things that, you know, uh, somebody once told me, you're a bridge, right? And so one of my my intellectual interests is to make connections between things. And um, so this book came from, in one sense, a desire to kind of bridge some of those questions that I had across these different. Fields of education, Um, and uh, so in some ways, it didn't come from one place or one particular problem, but just trying to tell a bigger story about why schools operate the way they do,
1: our school districts. Yeah, thank you. I think yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So before before we actually dive more deeply into your analysis, I thought it it could be helpful to clarify some of the concepts you lay out in 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 the start of the book. so, you talk about these contradictory pressures that public schools face. So, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about what do you mean by this?
0: Sure. Um, I mean, I think we kind of, and probably the default way, especially in the United States, that people think about schooling is as the great equalizer. Um, and that is kind of schools hold this special place in our understanding about democracy and about equity. As a mechanism by which we can realize those in our society at kind of a society level at an individual level education is seen as this way for upward mobility like how we can kind of help our children get the things we want them to have in life um and especially for those who don't have resources um so we can think of that and and this is not entirely not true right education is is very much important to um your life chances for example, increasingly, actually, that's the case in the U.S. As kind of some colleagues at UC Berkeley have seen, um, sociologists and others. But on the other hand, um, we also know that schools, and we could also say schools, have been a large kind of barrier to that that process of a more equal society. Um, they have been, and they continue to be a major site of inequality. And in many ways, you could say they've been designed. At the onset, you know, to be a places where some will get ahead and others will not, or won't even be able to attend, um, and so they may maintain, maintain racial hierarchies or class distinctions, um, and they function in this way. Right now, they're already inequitable when we look kind of broadly across the U.S. or globally. Um, so, the example that I kind of like to use for this idea of this tension between both what we think is possible and to some extent what education has been able to realize especially public schooling, um, but also as a site where many of our inequalities are reproduced, is if we think about this picture that I think pretty well known in the U.S. of Ruby Bridges, um, it was both a photograph that was then immortalized by, um, um, uh, I'm forgetting forgetting his name, but in a painting, Norman Rockwell in this kind of iconic painting, um, and it's, she's a, at the time, Ruby Bridges, who's now a grown woman, you know, a grandmother at the time um, in the 1950s, she was a six year old wearing a white pinafore, you know, walking into the school steps to single handedly try to desegregate the New Orleans public schools. And she's it's it's notable because here she is, this little black girl. And she is surrounded by um, National Guardsmen who are armed and what they're armed is because there are mobs of white parents and community people who are against this desegregation of schools. So from one view and right, certainly the Norman Rockwell view is like, look how wonderful. Here's progress, right? Here's schools being on the front lines of desegregating our society. On the other hand, we can look at that and say, here's school. This is a place they were trying to keep her out. They were not trying to segregate those schools, including the schools themselves, right? They were under a court order to do so, a federal order to do so. And so that's kind of, you know, trying to capture this tension in what schools are. And it's one that school policymakers continually confront. There's the ideal of making schools places that, you know, pursue and our places of equity, and the reality that they are um, as much a reflection of the inequalities in our society as as many other institutions.
1: The other concepts that I wanted to spend some time on have to do with the distinct approaches of education policy and leadership that you talk about at the start of the book. So you mentioned the professional bureaucratic approach, the social justice approach, and the new managerial approach. So I thought it could be helpful if you kind of uh, tell us a little bit more about what they mean in the differences between them.
0: Yeah. So, this is, I mean, these three kind of categories are not something I empirically tested in the book, but a, a way to kind of conceptualize different approaches people take to how, to thinking about how we should lead schools and what are kind of the kinds of expertise and commitments that should guide what schools are like. And the professional bureaucratic one is probably the default one in many places in the U.S. It's the idea that the expertise on how schools should be uh, comes from the professionals, uh, administrators or educators who are kind of trained in education um, and guided by an applic- uh, kind of an even application of the rules, right, or the policies that exist. In general, we can kind of think of this as that model um the one best system is what David Tyak called it, right? And this um, orientation often has been that because the professionals know best, how can we take the children in our school system and kind of assimilate them into society, right? Um, So that's kind of the professional bureaucratic approach. The social justice approach, somewhat in response to that, in response to other things, has tried to kind of explicitly see schools as... Um, sites of tension and power and inequality and try to use schools as a a lever towards a more just society. Often process rather than kind of the outcome is emphasized in terms of this vision of how you achieve this, right? So it's about making kind of uh, just processes, but also what is the everyday experience of schooling like and valuing people and their differences and connections to community. Um, So this is, you know, great, of increasing interest to people studying education as well. Um, the third one is a kind of new managerial approach. It's similar to this idea that, um, you know, schools should be modeled on, on, on businesses, right? Uh, it's very much the value is in efficiency or effectiveness. Um, what, you know, in today's parlance kind of would raise test scores, um, but in taking business as a model, especially corporate or entrepreneurial models of business Um, often that idea of what's efficient or most effective doesn't recognize the existing inequalities around race. Um, And so it's what I call a kind of a colorblind managerialism. And here, I I guess I would say, I use the word colorblind managerialism in the book. Um, I'd probably say now race evasive managerialism um, because colorblindness has an ableist um, notion embedded within it. So, but... This race of managerialism is kind of like let's find the most efficient or effective means to produce the outcomes. In this case, usually the outcomes are graduation rates or test scores, um, and it doesn't think about the fact that already there are there is racial inequality. So typically, it's like treat everybody the same, um, and you don't try to design for um, address or try to design or address racism in in the in the approach that it takes.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, given the, this this concept, uh, so let's let's move more more closely to to your investigation. So, in the book, you analyze two school districts in Wisconsin, Milltown and Fairview. Can you tell us about the characteristics of those districts?
0: Yeah, I, I chose these two schools because they do con- uh, school districts because they contrast with each other. So, Milltown, we have it's a kind of a working class, traditionally manufacturing based city in Wisconsin. It has a conservative political orientation and uh, some anti immigrant politics in the broader area. Um, both districts are about 20, 25,000 students. Then the other district is Fairview. Fairview is, in contrast to Milltown, a relatively low resourced community with more of a middle class population. Um, or a more upper middle class population, and a reputation for being politically liberal, espousing values of kind of equity, and inclusion, and local policy, and so forth. So, in in terms of their politics and their economics of these communities, they provide a contrast. They're about the same size in the same state context as well.
1: So, you argue that one of one of the central reasons for choosing districts uh, as the focus of the analysis is that they faced demographic changes, economic and political shifts, which are representative of the shifts faced by many school districts in the heartland of the U.S. Uh, I wonder if you could also talk a bit about the changes they were facing at that time.
0: Yeah, Um, I I should say that the kind of starting point was that both districts were going through demographic change. I don't know if I mentioned that. They were both becoming more racially diverse, um, but also seeing greater inequality in their student populations. So, I mean, this is what's happening and we look kind of across the United States. So um, in both districts, they had a arrival of different immigrant groups. Um, so with that, most, although not all immigrants um, are English learners or they're multilingual learners. Um, there was also internal migration, um, people coming to these cities for kind of a better, um, better opportunities from other places within the US, many of them people of color. Um, there was greater inequality, though, too. So this was happening around 2000, 2008, 2009, sometimes called the Great Recession. Uh, many families are becoming, you know, as at that time, we're really struggling financially, but it's part of a larger shift that we've seen towards greater inequality globally. So and especially in the US, right, this is the kind of the greatest inequality we've, we've had historically, and by some measures. So that was one set of changes that was happening. Was this demographic change, but then also, in part of what was happening in Milltown was kind of a deindustrialization that we've seen in the Midwest, um, replacing sometimes well-paid union jobs with um, low-skilled, low-wage labor jobs, and then recruiting immigrants to be in those um, in those food processing industries or other similar kinds of industries. So that kind of a whole dynamic. It wasn't just the schools that were changing, right? But in some ways, the schools were changing first and seeing a lot of this happening. In many ways, people just kind of had the, the districts uh, had more challenges, more different kinds of students to serve um, than they had. And in the context of having more, less, fewer dollars, um, budget cuts that had kind of affected districts across the state, including the somewhat wealthier. Fairview um, was also seeing, you know, uh, pretty large budget cuts year after year in its district as well. Both were um, accountability pressures under No Child Left Behind were hitting, and and we, you know, when you think about educating students whose first language may not be English, but you know, the tests are in English. Um, Those kinds of things, certainly that made a difference. Um, Poverty is a big predictor, of course, of how you do on these tests. So it was kind of over-determined that these districts are not going to do well. And then there was heightened competition from other districts. So in some places, there's charter schools. That wasn't a huge dynamic in these districts. Rather, what they had was heightened competition from open enrollment programs. So they had other uh, state policy that you could live in one place and send your child to another district. And of course, you know, each of these kinds of things is a kind of pressure that makes it harder for school districts that are serving low-income students and students of color or immigrant students, right? It makes that harder. They may need more resources. They are less prepared to do that in most cases in the US. Um, So that may require more training. um, And so they just have more pressures, less money, (laughs) uh, more different kinds of needs. To, to accommodate and, or I shouldn't say accommodate, but to really meet the challenges that they face.
1: So we have two districts facing uh, lots of changes, facing all sorts of uh, challenges, new challenges, and also facing pressures from, from different sides as well. Uh, so now uh, you also detail in the book how they reacted to all sorts of things that were going on. Uh, and you talk about two specific practices that were implemented. So first, you write about how they introduce uh, strong data monitoring practices. Uh, so what what are what are some of the reasons you think they introduced this kind of practice, and what are the the outcomes that you observed?
0: Yeah, and I mean I should say these are really I I dig into these two places, but both the problems I and pressures I just described and these strategies that they take up are really common across school districts and i found that you know when you talk to district leaders or school leaders in these places it really resonates that like all of these things are happening at once and they're trying these kinds of um, interventions so one i think if you've been in schools it's really ubiquitous data monitoring right and it can look a lot of different ways um like looking at the data database decision making these are all the kinds of things people talk about as um you know, things that they're doing in schools to address the achievement gap. Um, let's see. Uh, so um, I guess I want to say there's, there's a couple different ways they did this in this district. So sometimes at a school level, they would take their test score data on, based on annual tests, or it even could be interim tests that they've given the students, usually in math and in reading, and they would look at those scores and they would try to identify where students weren't doing as well. Um, And so they would spend a lot of time looking at this data. And that's kind of a a common process that you see in a lot of places. And then the question is, um, what should you do differently? The data, of course, doesn't answer that question. It might help you to identify where there's an issue. It only looks at what is tested. And so it can only tell you if you have issues around those particular things. So I'm just trying to say here that it's a pretty narrow look at what some of the challenges might be. And then it doesn't really tell you what the answers are. But this is really kind of a... Uh, it's not entirely new, but it's certainly amped up under No Child Left Behind. And now ESA. this idea that you'll look at the data and that will guide your decisions, right? So back to this question of race-evasive managerialism or colorblind managerialism, it doesn't, you know, again, it's not taking into account the different opportunities students in a school or different schools may have to make those particular scores or whose knowledge is being valued in those tests. Um, but it is maybe an effective m- measure for a way to measure and account for what is known. Um, so, but that's one vision. And there were many different things they did. So they also had this way where they would collect data and they would ask principals in, in Milltown to report on all their data at the school board meetings. And so in front of the public, they had to go up there and say, well, here are different um Here are different tests we've given the students. Here are different measures. Here's some other data we've collected um, around our curriculum. And here's what it shows. And here's my plan for what I'm going to do, right? So just, again, taking that same idea of take data, analyze it, um, and and make a plan for how you're going to respond. And so you know, part of what I'm arguing is they did a lot of this in all different kinds of ways in both districts in Fairview. It had more of a, you did a similar process for a strategic plan. But one of the problems is that you're only seeing the data that you're collecting. And often this was pretty narrow, as I mentioned, right? Just reading and mathematics. Um, It had a sense that you you were doing something about the problem because you were like studying it and you were analyzing it. And in some ways it did really cause people to pay attention to inequalities between groups. So in Milltown, they talked a lot about we didn't really think about how our different racial groups were doing until No Child Left Behind came and then we started looking at the data in all these different ways within our school system um but one of the things that i argue is that they can go through these entire processes and really lose sight of the fact that um for example students are coming to school you know um with really uh like or sorry like one of the main things that uh, one of the I guess vignettes or stories that I tell in the book is about a school board meeting in Milltown where they're thinking like, let's help improve our most struggling schools, and they call all the principals in to report on those schools. And the principals talk a little bit about the school. Um, one of the principals, uh, at the the one of the ch- the schools that had kind of the lowest test scores, talked about a third of the students being kind of transient. That was that in any given year, a third of the students would come in and out of the school. And they would have basically a whole nother set of students in that time. So uh, for one thing, then what does your data mean if it's about students that aren't even at the school anymore? Um, and But secondly, you know, it felt to people like we're looking at this data. We have a plan based on the data of what we're going to do. And they were missing this whole situation really high levels of poverty the fact that kids were housing insecure that's why they were transient right is that they would not they're they're they were being evicted or their house housing was falling through they were bouncing around to couches and so they there were these kind of deeper problems that were being completely kind of ignored or obscured by this focus always on the data and looking at the data Um, so that's kind of you know, I, on many levels, I think it wasn't helpful. It wasn't addressing those deeper issues, and also it really didn't tell you what you should do. Um, but it did spend it did take a lot of time, and it did make people feel like they were doing something right um, when there were these inequalities that sort were of being surfaced.
1: Yeah. So the, the other reaction that you that you focus on the book have to do to how districts use their diverse student bodies as a marketing strategy. Uh, So I also want to hear a little bit about that. And what was the logic behind this reaction? And and did you observe that such a value attributed to racial diversity actually represented educational gains to the minority students in these schools?
0: Yeah, so I call this kind of strategy marketing diversity. And I think in both districts... because they were having these changing demographics, there was a really strong concern about kind of what might be called white, or they thought about, I think, as white flight, right? The idea that more privileged families would see these diversifying classrooms um, and sometimes what was coming with it was falling test scores or other concerns. And, And, you know, based on... Essentially, racism would decide that they didn't want their kids to go there, and so what they felt like they needed was to really change that dynamic and that feeling. So, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense. On the one hand, when we, uh, which is like you, like kind of try to help people not be racist, I think was you know kind of at the heart of it. Um, so, one thing about the kind of notion of white flight, though, we know from earlier kind of research from earlier eras, is that. In a way, it's a bit of a misnomer because I think we can think about it as just like white people being racist and not wanting to live in integrated neighborhoods and urban areas and going to the suburbs. But there were a number of different factors that were going on, including the availability of subset, like low, uh, uh, subsidies for middle class people to buy housing in the suburbs, shifts in um, work to the suburbs, well-playing jobs to the suburbs, but only that were available usually to white people, right? So it wasn't just that, like, people moving to the suburbs were racist, although they may have been, but also that there were federal policies, real estate um, practices, um, business decisions, right, that really created a set of opportunities in the suburbs um, that were all predominantly and almost exclusively available to white families. Um, and so but that white flight idea right the idea that it was kind of like people were really racist and they didn't want to live in the city anymore and so they moved um is very powerful to to district leaders and they didn't want that to happen because the implication for schools was that they would lose a lot of enrollment um or you know enrollment monies uh, to their already difficult budgets but also that You know, there's a sense that the school wouldn't be seen as legitimate or a good school if it didn't have white students attending it. So I think, you know, those are some of the underlying concerns that we're driving this idea that we should kind of market our diversity. And the idea of marketing, right, is, again, this business idea, like, let's solve this by kind of appealing to these customers that we want to keep. And I think the idea of marketing diversity kind of, again, and this is what a lot of the race-evasive managerialism are color blind managerialism it's appealing to that tension around what schools are on the one hand they reproduce the inequality on the other hand they're places where we can be more equitable so you know i think most people were like yes i want to be more equitable i want people to think that this diversity is a positive thing even if they didn't always think it themselves so their idea was like let's market it let's show what's good about racial diversity Um, maybe that will kind of make people want to stay in our districts um, as they're dealing with these kind of competition from neighboring mostly suburb, suburban school districts. Um, And so they kind of, you know, one district does an ad campaign that they put on the, um, you know, on YouTube, et cetera. Um, Another district kind of, they start making the plan and uh, designing it, and then they run out of funding for it. So um, but what I argue is that, though this sounds like great. Like, why not promote the, the students that are in our district? Um, drawing on work by Maya Kuchiara, she talks about how school choice often, you know, op- is operationalized as trying to get a specific valued customer. And that valued customer is usually a privileged white parent. And um, so there was that dynamic and that what they really wanted was not just any students to come or to keep any students, but to con- keep these kind of valued customers, those who could move, right, um, who had the resources or the desire to go into a different district. Um, at the same time, their notion of diversity that then that they appealed to was one that would appeal to those valued customers as opposed to necessarily reflecting us. Um, Equal status or value of students in this district. So the example that I give, I think that's easy to understand, is in Milltown, where they had very few Mandarin-speaking students. They were promoting Chinese, right? Uh, you could learn Mandarin as a language or Italian, right? And again, although they did have some Somali immigrants, and that you know because of colonialism, Italian is spoken there. Uh, you know they they didn't. Um, that wasn't for those students, right? And so what it was actually doing was kind of re-inscribing this idea that there is a certain set of people that we really want to keep in the school district and other people who we are actually not even really valuing their own cultures and languages. So um, that, I think, is one of the the shortcomings. And again, it also doesn't address some of these kind of other issues, right, around resources and around what textbooks even are available to kids.
1: Yeah, thank you. This is all very interesting. And I think it's helpful to detail some of the stories that you that you outline in the book. But I should say we're just scratching the surface here. There are way more details about those stories in the book that we have time to actually go through. Uh, But given this kind of general outline of of your findings, I I also wanted to make sure to ask some some questions around the lessons learned from your observations. Uh, So first, Yeah, we have here two very different districts that had similar reactions to the demographic and economic shifts that they faced. Uh, What does the fact that different districts had such similar reactions, you think, tell us in terms of education policy?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that so many of the things were really similar on a kind of in the big picture. Um, really tells us that there's a lot of structural inequality baked into the school system, how schools are operate. Um, so again, things like all of the districts are being are facing budget cuts or many many districts are facing budget cuts, right? They have fewer resources to try to improve the schools. Um, but also this kind of dynamic again, uh, like you know, certain parents along lines of race, have more resources to advocate for what they want in the school districts. And that's true. That was true in both places, right? Um, The competition dynamic that I mentioned where, you know, your um, suburban schools are trying to attract other families and certain families, again, usually more white and more privileged families have the resources to actually take advantage of that and leave, right? So those are things that we're really... The same in both; those dynamics were the same in both districts, and they mattered to um, how people tried to address the problem. Now, I do think the specificities mattered, and I try to point out some of those details in the book. You know, how the the, the more liberal Fairview and the, the more conservative Milltown. You know, what are the kinds of things they prioritized, and and how they did it. I do think those things matter. Um, But I wanted to make sure, because so often we can lose the larger picture of how these structural pieces, how we organize schools, choices that we've made or that have been made historically about how we allocate resources and about having small school districts versus larger ones and so forth and so on, actually really continue to shape the decisions that are made today. And I'm not saying then that means nothing can be done about it, um, but I just kind of really think that we have probably not sat enough with the fact that these things really matter and they shape many different kinds of policies um and, and dynamics within school systems, school districts.
1: Right, for sure. I feel like emphasizing those those structural factors and those those constant pressures across schools, it's a definitely valuable lesson from from the investigations. Uh so, so you highlight another concept, the one of interest convergence, which is one that you frequently mention to interpret those reactions. So I wonder if you could also speak a little bit about how it helped us to to make sense of of your observations.
0: Yeah. Well, so I guess for listeners, like the the term interest convergence was coined by um, a legal theorist, Derek Bell, an African-American man who was working in kind of the the area or the tradition of critical race theory. you could think of as a kind of a forethought author of that in, within legal studies. And he was looking at Brown versus the board of education, that seminal Supreme court decision and how it came about. And so part of his argument about that um, was that Brown didn't just come out of good intentions or people suddenly changing their ideas about the law. Rather it came about um, by uh, um, you know, various members of the el- white elite deciding that it was in their interest to change this law. So his the notion of interest convergence is that Black people would not make progress until it was seen as in the interest of white people for them to do so. Um, and so this kind of idea, it's not meant to be a blueprint <laughs> for how to have social change, but it's kind of a sense that, in and in rather um, kind of a way of uh, like a dynamic that I saw playing out in different places time and again and you know speaks to the fact that it's not just like you know people of color wanting progress enough or that necessarily um, people's minds will be changed um, that you know because we kind of again back to that progress discourse the Ruby Bridges story this you know civil rights story often so that's the notion of the interest convergence um and you know i, I think a, of an example that i talked about with the marketing of diversity i think one thing that people did and something i saw is promising in the district uh the districts were the decisions to, to adopt dual language immersion programs and those are programs where um students uh who often usually it's spanish and english but it can be any two language pairs students who are native to both languages would speak that's their home language would speak both of those languages in the classroom, and they would learn the language they didn't know as well in the class. So you would become bilingual through participation in these classrooms. Um, and this these programs were attractive to the school systems, not only because they have been shown through academic research to be very advantageous for um, English language learners. Uh, you know, not only do they maybe retain their home language and learn the language, um, the dominant language, English, in this case in the U.S., but they also can learn content at high levels in both of those languages. So they learn; they're not just learning uh, how to speak English, which is too often what happens, and in that, and in that situation, also not learning. You know content science or whatever Um, and then also that these programs should be culturally relevant so it values those students and their culture as well that's great Um, but so often what was also appealing um, to district leaders was the fact that there was a subset of families in both districts who liked the idea of their children becoming bilingual and those were privileged white and or or maybe privileged families from other um, racial ethnic backgrounds um and they saw this as a way for their kids to kind of complete globally if they were B bilingual or, in any case, it per, it appealed to those valued customers again. Um, so that is an example, I think, of interest convergence that they got those programs kind of really only after it became in the interest of the district leaders because these other parents were interested in those programs as well. Right, So that's the interest convergence there.
1: Yeah, thank you. So I... Wanted to ask you then a broader question, which I guess uh, folks which are interested in the book might be sometimes quickly and eager to kind of listen to, and uh, so what do you think your, your, your kind of findings tell us about what can be done to to improve educational opportunities for minority students in, in diverse districts?
0: Sure. Um- I mean, I, I actually think it might be a bit depressing, especially when you point to these structural problems and feel they feel very immovable. Um, I, I don't go a lot of into the book, but I actually do think there's a lot that teachers and educators can do in their classrooms and that, you know, school leaders and, and families can do in schools and classrooms and in the environments and the ways that they support youth in kind of everyday ways. But really, like the kind of take home that I want people to be thinking about is how they can really change those broader structures and um, both within policies within schools, but also beyond school walls. Um, Because, you know, over and over again, we're seeing how those dynamics and the fact that some families are responded to more and have more influence in school systems and have more options and resources Um, So try to shape the schools as the way they are, right? That's the continual kind of dynamic that we see. And that's um, structured into school policymaking or school district policymaking. So I really kind of think about how do you do that? Well, you do it through kind of people power. You do it through social movement. Um, And that sounds just really kind of vague and pie in the sky on one level, right? People are like, but what is the, you know, what's the thing I can do today? But I want to say that we live in a time, you know, this is kind of a really busy social movement time, like in our in our history of the U.S. Right? So the movement for Black Lives is the largest social movement we've ever had in this country, um, and we there's been other things, you know, pro- progressive and and retrogressive or reactionary social movements. So I don't want to say like every social movement is a good social movement, but we certainly see. Um, a lot of places where people have organized together to try to see the change that they want increasingly. So, you know, I think about um, in a couple districts where some of the teachers' unions have worked with local communities um, and families and place and community based organizations and all places they serve to try to use the bargaining process as a way to get some of the shared goals that they have for school and try to address problems both within schools like the pressure and the focus on high stakes accountability, um, but also things like affordable housing that are important to communities and important to students, even if they're not directly influencing what happens in the school. So. Um, There's some really nice examples across the country of where that kind of thing is happening, where people are kind of talking to their neighbors, right? I mean, the concrete action is like, talk to your neighbors about these issues, get them to come to a meeting, get those neighbors to get other neighbors to come, right? Um, In other words, organizing. So I do think that is kind of a, um, it is both a big thing, but it's also a concrete um, way to address
1: some of those issues. Yeah. Thank you. We've taken up a lot of your time already. So to wrap up, I just wanted to ask you about your research since finishing the book. So what are some of the projects which you've taken up or some of the questions that you're interested in now?
0: Yeah. Um. So a lot of, again, a lot of my interest is just how people make sense of what is equitable or inequitable around race in policymaking. So with a colleague, I've looked at that in tracking policy um, or um, kind of gifted and talented programs, how people debated that and came to think of it um, as increasing access to um, these tracked school uh, classes as more equitable rather than abolishing a system that tracks kids as equitable So that's work I've done with my colleague, Angela in Spain, where we looked at one of my districts that's in this study in a California district to see how that kind of happens. I really, um, I I usually study whatever's happening in school districts because I'm interested in like kind of the process and the people frame it as opposed to some people kind of specialize in like, um, I study tracking or I study school discipline. But in my kids, I study whatever the issue is people are talking about. And, but in that way, I have gotten interested in school discipline and in school resource officers, which are um, school-based police officers usually. Um, and so another set of research I've been doing and work I've done is looked at um, kind of the racial politics and the political economy of school discipline, right? So both um, how race has shaped decisions about school discipline policy and especially around school policing, and then also some of the broader Uh, structures that have shaped that conversation as well Um, and that's that's an area that I'm you know kind of continue to be interested in Um, school COVID reopenings has become you know became an issue with my colleague Alex Freitas we looked at you know how um, people justified whether or not we should or should not reopen schools in New York City Um, and and the difference You know, we often think uh, I think we so much of the terms is like what will increase achievement. But what was interesting about those conversations is it wasn't necessarily totally about that. There were many different kinds of arguments that were happening around why schools should or shouldn't open and who gets to be cared about and cared for and what is cared about in those problems. So really, we use that to think about what is really just in education policy. Um, so those are some of the things, and then just kind of the next things that are coming down the down the pipeline will probably those are some of the things I've done recently, and then some of the things coming down the pipeline are just are more around multiracial school politics, and and then also policy for multiracial democracy. So in most of these studies, there are cities that have, you know, it's not just a black white student population. And that is certainly something that was the case and in, in, in suddenly diverse. But I'm trying to tackle that a bit more head on in terms of thinking about how to think about that theoretically and then practically, empirically, What's the politics that's happening in those kinds of places and how can we design schools that are more, I'm doing this with a couple of colleagues around the country, kind of think about how we can design schools that are kind of um, address multiracial democracy, promote
1: it. Yeah, this is all very interesting and, and important work. So I'm looking forward to, to reading more of it as, as you work on that. Uh, so, Erica, thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, we've been talking about the book Suddenly Diverse How School Districts Manage Race and Inequality by Professor Erica Turner and recently published by the University of Chicago Press. Thank you for listening.